0: And Digify Native Artist Series. I'm your host, Chandra Eklugan Safran. Today, I talk with Lane Nishinakut Reinhardt. Lane practices the traditional art of Chilkat weaving, an intricate art form that retains its traditional designs and meanings, while evolving within the Hlingit communities of Southeast Alaska. It's
1: not even just an object, it's like this whole other living entity.
0: Lane shared their story, weaving together the past The present and the future of not just their journey, but the journey of those who came before them.
1: So you kind of have to reach into that that wellspring of knowledge that's out there. And I think for a lot of Native people, there is almost this ability to tap into sort of some sort of ancestral pathway.
0: And how practicing an art form that belongs to community offers a space to express personal and cultural identity.
1: So for me, being able to express my gender through weaving is, is a way for me to feel safe and accepted.
0: This is the Indigify Native Artist Series. Our theme music is Khaumayuapik by Inuk artist Reet. I'm Chandra kugan and today I talk with Lane Nichianagut Reinhardt. This conversation has been edited for clarity and length.
1: yadi. My Clinket name is Nichianagutye, and I am Raven Frog from the Tiaton clan in Wrangell, Alaska. I am also Tiwa. I am adopted uh, Um My dad is Kogwantan, and my mother is actually Tiwa from Taos Pueblo in New Mexico. My Tiwa name is Bumpuzia Batu, which means uh, White Sky Knife. I'm a child of the Cogwanton, so my dad is Cogwanton. and um, my mother and my brother and I were adopted into the clan opposite, say Tiaton and Wrangell, and so his father and his, you know, his father, his uncles and his aunts were um, Tiaton from Wrangell, and then his mother, my dad's mother, was Cogwanton, and she came down with her mother from Klugwon, Alaska. I think that the way it went is that my grandmother and sorry, rather, yeah, my grandmother and my grandfather on my dad's side probably met somewhere, perhaps you know, fishing related, and then she moved down with her mom after she had met my grandfather, and then they settled in Wrangell.
0: Lane described how Raven's tail and Chilkat weaving differ, from who practiced each art form to the designs and striking color schemes.
1: But Raven's tail would probably be more recognizable by having a lot of like geometric shapes in it, like concentric shapes. Um, There's no cedar bark in in the warp. So um, it would have just been traditionally spun with just the mountain goat wool. Like the amount of techniques in it are, are, there's more than Chilkow weaving. I can't remember how many techniques are in Raven's tail weaving, which is why I don't necessarily like practice it that much. Um, But there are a lot. The color selection is different. Um, traditionally it would just be the white the black and then a little bit sparing use of yellow and for whatever reason i still think that that's the best combination just like a little bit of yellow now and then for that accent's pretty pretty awesome and you know in a way though like that's kind of like the it's like almost like the i want to say pure almost sounds like a little bit too much but 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 raven's tail weaving would have been like a woman's art form through and through the design, the production of it, all the materials, the weaving of it would have solely been based in women's art. out weaving is kind of like a combination, like, you know, maybe somebody, like the weaver's uncle or another artist in the community that was male would have designed the pattern board that the woman would have then wove. Um, and then that's where you kind of get into the curvilinear totemic forms of that are present in weaving, like kind of more of the form line based um, weaving styles. But even within Chilkat weaving, there's kind of like a modified um, form line art style. So there, there's like design elements that are very specific to Chilkat weaving. One that pops out is if you look on robes, there'll be like some a blue element on either corner in the upper corners. For some reason, those are always there. Basic difference is Raven's Tale is more geometric-based. Chilkat has more of the, the form line and curvilinear aspects to it. To
0: understand how such an intricate art form lives today, I was curious how it lived
1: in years past. When you go back and look at it historically, it would have only been that certain women are, you know, given the knowledge to, like, learn how to weave. And I don't know if you've heard about this, and I, I can't remember the it name for it, but there was a time where, Young women when they were going through their period, would go and live in like a, a hut or what, what have you outside of the, the main lawn house, so to speak. And, and Shelley was kind of mentioning it and she was like, you know, the way anthropologists talk about it was like the, such an in, inhumane practice. like they would be, go, be, be shut away in this shack outside <laughs> the main house. But she was kind of laughing when she was talking about this because she was like imagining growing up in the same house as all of your aunts or uncles all these other people and this is like the first time in your life you've ever had your own room and it's not not like you had to just stay in there you would go and you would or you know be around you know other people too but she she likened it to sort of almost like the the Clinkett version of like receiving your education and the longer you stayed in in there the more information or the more you know skills that you would receive and so she was saying you know essentially if a of a a woman was allowed to stay in there for a very long time, she might come out learning how to weave chill cat. But yeah, I think in a way that that had always been reserved, and there's probably only been a handful of, of weavers that have ever woven, like, a full-size robe, if that makes sense. Like, at any given time, like, it's hard to say. Like, it really is hard to say. You know, it's always been been just a, a handful, maybe 10, 15 at any given time, that, you know, had the expertise or the time to, to weave a, a full-size robe
0: Lane's story about one of their early pieces demonstrates how weaving is a living tradition that allows them to express their identity today.
1: One of the first pieces I did that I felt like really good about was it was uh, it was a cholcat face, and I think I I think in a lot of ways it was kind of me trying to express how I feel um. Not only as a two-spirited person, but then also um, being like in a way, just sort of addressing like, um, you know, being like, you know, biracial or multiracial, and it's like we may not think that, you know, somebody might be like, well, they're they're you know, American Indian or, or Alaska Native or, or what have you, or. Native American or something like that. But then when you're from, like, two different tribal backgrounds, like, that, that, that is a experience of, like, living within two – or, like, having two different kind of cultural heritages and, and things like that. And I think I already kind of, you know, touched on that a little bit. But um, one of the first pieces I did that I was like, this is okay, um, was a Chilkat face. But then um, – and typically speaking on a Chilkat face, you might have one color for the mask. That could be yellow – that could be kind of like the turquoise blue or it could be um green if it was, or the green. And then, you know, some chill cat faces don't have a mask at all. The one I did was kind of split in between being, uh, having half of it green on one side and half of it yellow on the other. So I think that was kind of a way of me within the art form, having like a, a dialogue about, you know, having two different backgrounds or being two spirited. And so kind of encompassing that, you know, my identity within, within um, that piece is, is one where I kind of approached that subject. So for me, being able to express my gender through weaving is, is a way for me to feel safe and accepted.
0: For individuals, families, and communities who have endured colonial history across Alaska, there can be a personal journey to reckoning with a painful reality of how colonization unfolds for us and our families. As Lane describes, the impacts of colonization do not tell our whole story, but it's one that deserves a voice for the artists who've overcome its harms.
1: Like Wrangell at that time was not a very, you know, while my dad was growing up, was not a very accepting community for a lot of Native people, a lot of very, you know, overt racism, targeting, you know, Alaska Native, Tlingit, Haida, simsham people. You know, after I came back from, from college is kind of like really when we started attending things like Kuiks and Wrangell. There was um some Kuiks and Wrangell, and which were like kind of the first ones in like a really long time because, that, you know, Wrangell as a community had been like really, really uh, fractured, um so to speak, culturally. And so that that has been a big shift over the last few years is just sort of the returning of those, you know, ceremonies or events that we as Linka people would have. And you know although celebration isn't traditional, I think even just you know showing up and like you know with the with the wrinkle dance group has been like really healing for for us and you know my my father especially you know dealt with with you know that more overt racism where it's, it's still very difficult for him to talk about, and you can tell it affected him so see, seeing him kind of go through that process of you know being able to get on stage and, and then, you know, wear his regalia and, and, you know, things like that. And like, you know, represent his Kaguantan heritage in Wrangell because when his family moved down, his mom and her grandmother moved and all their siblings and things like this, you know, in a way that's kind of almost like a migration in and of itself. It's like, you know, the moving of a whole family unit. And, you know, there were a big Cogwanton family in Wrangell. And so now, you know, my dad, is able to wear like atuu and and you know a Chilkat blanket and you know it's been like just amazing to see that that happen for him and sort of that that reembracing of his identity as well and it's still hard to talk about and still some like a conversation that i w- i wish i wouldn't have to necessarily have with myself about why this is why it's difficult for me to sometimes like you know think about learning cl- or learning Tiwa or, um, you know, practicing my art form, because those are all, like, beautiful healing themes. And so there is a little bit of, like, a, a juxtaposition in between, I think, for my, myself of something that has such, like, great meaning and joy also having this other side of it. And, and, and I think, that, you know, we all know why that is. There's a historical trauma, intergenerational trauma, you know, assimilation, you know it's not necess- it's not the whole story right you right. know yeah. i mean but you know it is a, it is a part of it too and i think i think it's okay to kind of acknowledge that i'm like okay maybe that's just part of the journey of like kind of getting getting through that process and then you know maybe other people won't have to go through that same journey ideally right right so it's like you know there's all these little steps and pieces we have to fit together before we can like really work towards like you know practicing our form with like intent and and the right sort of spiritual mindset and then also learning the language without like being afraid to even, you know, say hello or my, this is what my name is.
0: When I talk with artists and creative practitioners, a concept that sometimes comes up is about the creative impulse. What compels us to create the things we make? For Lane, they describe the strands of healing, creative instinct, and an ancestral pull that felt instantly familiar
1: just kind of reaching into the art form of of weaving has been um, pretty instrumental to like my own healing journey um, as far as reclaiming and saying, you know, this is who I am, you know, what I practice, you know, the people I associate with, you know, through that, the the countless women that have kind of like helped me along this journey of like, I can do this even, even in those moments where there may be like self doubt and you're kind of, you know, you're kind of grasping because, you know, as many mentors as you have, there'll be situations in which you kind of just have to put it out there to the universe to help you get through something. And it's like, because they may not be sitting next to you all the time. So you kind of have to reach into that, that wellspring of knowledge that's out there. And I think for a lot of Native people, there is almost this ability to tap into sort of some sort of ancestral pathway. I've heard you speak really beautifully about in the practice of weaving,
0: essentially feeling like you are part of this long tradition and sort of being
1: present with your ancestors at times right and you know lineage is such an interesting i think concept because i don't think it's not just you know genetic i think in like x you know xyz you know what i mean it may be that you know I have a teacher, you know, that that taught me one thing and then a teacher that taught me another. And then, you know, so so that that's a concept of lineage, too. But I don't know. I think it's somewhere out there that it's like, okay, all of our ancestors like had some sort of craft or some sort of skill that they had, whether it was like weaving baskets or chill robes or any of those types of things, it's like, you know, that kind of memory lives on. So as much as there might be, like, this trauma that's this, you know, intergenerational trauma, there's also this other part of it where there's these, like, gifts that were given. And so for me, that's part of been, that's part of, like, my journey towards um, really embracing my identity as a person. Clearly, we're in a
0: place where things are evolving. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And the practices are going to evolve based on... The context that we're in and the context that we're in yeah. is that we need to support all of our practices and the right. people who are drawn to them in some True. way and who do feel those like, and not even just feel the ancestor, you know, the
1: the calls of our ancestors, but right. who
0: will listen and actually go and follow and respond to sure. them.
1: Because, <laughs> that makes sense too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like you can hear them all you want, but
0: <laughs> but unless you allow yourself to go and like follow <laughs> right. those whispers...
1: And, you know, we talk about this, it's like, um, you know, the lifetime of a a robe is like, it's like not only telling like the story of whatever the design is, but a lot of the, the weaver's life is in that. It's not even just an object. It's like this whole other living entity, you know, for so many years or, you know, a year. And it's like so much has happened in your life during that time period. It might be that, you know, you went through a breakup or a divorce or, you know, a family member passed away and... You know, but but day in and day out, you're finding time to do this where it's still an important part of your life every day. But that is told within a robe or, you know, any kind of weaving is like what what is happening to this person, both spiritually and physically.
0: That's really beautifully put the way that you just described the robe as almost being like a living entity, like you said. You know, as you've mentioned, the designs themselves have meanings imbued into them, whether it's. Or scope of meaning, whether it's just, you know, an individual family thing or an entire spiritual practice. Right. But then the weaver's life is sort of in that finished piece as well. Mm-hmm.
1: Being, you know, a part of the group that you know Lily has helped put together, and other, you know, all the other weavers that are out there, it's like. All those, sh- all those scenes are kind of, like, shared. It's, like, you know, it's kind of like, you know, the flinket the version of, like, a knitting circle or something like that, where, you know, people are sharing very, you know, intimate, you know, parts of their life with each other. And, and sometimes with people that we've never, you know, seen in person or ever met in person, may never will meet in person.
0: You've mentioned Jenny a couple of times. Can you expound a little oh, bit yeah, on oh okay. Jenny was? I mean,
1: it almost feels like, you know, she's one of those like I mean to me she almost feels like a mythological character <laughs> or you know this great you know woman but um, and she she was a great woman but she was a uh, Clarissa Rizal's teacher and she was you know so to speak as we would say the last the last master-, master weaver she grew up learning from her her maternal aunt and then like kind of like in a real traditional way kind of learning how to uh weave hay or you know choke out weaving so she Within this generation or, you know, last three generations of weavers, we kind of would, would consider her the the last master weaver who learned in that tradition. And so she taught Clarissa Rizal, who went on to teach a lot of current, you know, weavers of, of, of this um, generation, so to speak. And, you know, she, of course, um, Clarissa taught her daughter, Lily Hope, who has also gone on, gone on to be, you know, quite a prolific um, weaver and teacher as well.
0: The question that I... Ultimately ask myself is is this good for future generations Mm. and I think that's because ultimately I don't feel like my work is my own right? Right, I feel like the true owners of anything that I am able to do are future generations. Yeah, so yeah, I guess I wanted to ask about the concept of Ownership in your work, especially in traditional work I can only imagine that that feeling of this is not
1: mine might be intensified you know, I think it is. Um you know, it it it, it most definitely is. And it is something that um, it is kind of like a, a part of a reason why I'm like I'm grateful that there's this community of people I can practice this with now because you know, I definitely don't want to just be sitting, you know, weaving and then it's like, you know, if I learn something from this process, I want to be able to talk to other people about it because You know, otherwise it's like, yeah, you don't do this for yourself. And I don't think Native people ever really have. There's always kind of been this, you know, sharing or there's always been this like relationship of clan opposites commissioning a robe being woven or something like this. And so there's always been that relationship there. So I think, you know, it's extremely important to kind of think about it in, in that mindset. It's like I'm not weaving this robe just for the sake of weaving it even though it was not a commission <laughs> so you know and it, it it does kind of and this is kind of a personal dialogue that I struggle with you know just to be honest um, I had been weaving for a number of years and I applied for a grant and I was like well I want to weave a robe and then um, I got the grant and I was kind of like holy fuck alright I guess I have to do it now
0: and <laughs> <laughs> that went the exact direction i wanted it
1: to <laughs> <laughs> so yeah <laughs> awesome i was like do you have to ask that <laughs> but but no it's true and and which kind of like you know brings up a whole nother thing about um aspect of of it it's like okay yeah i applied for a grant i got the funding and then i realized that the real work began and that's that that's been part of my journey is just you know when 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 you receive something like that it becomes serious suddenly and um and I did have to kind of go through that like you know am i doing this for myself am i doing you know and and kind of have that inner dialogue with myself of why am uh, why am i doing this
0: but then on the other hand yeah. you know again speaking of of balances and spectrums of you know of motivators and inspiration mm-hmm. on the other hand there is there is something really, really healthy about owning the work that you're doing.
1: Oh yeah, I yeah. I think I think in a way, um, there is a there there is a place for being able to say like I did this, and I think that you know, sure that it isn't really talked about a whole lot, <laughs> but it is okay to be proud of what you've accomplished. I think, even if it's you know, takes me five ten years to weave this robe. And it very well may shift. It might be that like part of it's like looking like not so great up at the top. And then by the end of it, maybe it's going to look pretty goddamn good. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Hard to say at this point.
0: (laughs) Lane shared with me that my question about how you can work individual creative vision into an art form that is based on traditional designs is one they get a lot.
1: I don't really know how to liken it to any other art form, but what I will say is I think innovation can happen in like really, really small, subtle ways that you wouldn't think of as innovation in just about any other art form. Like it has such a color, set color palette. There's such a set method of design to it. And like, you know, you can switch it up a little bit, especially with small pieces, but when you're working like an, in a like robe status or something like this, or working on a robe, it's like, you don't want to alter that too much. I don't think and that's just what, you know, my teachers have been pretty vocal about. And so it's like when it comes to working on a robe, you don't want to just do anything with it, if that makes sense. But if you're working on like jewelry kind of size things, then there's like lots of room for innovation, I think. I did have like a harebrained idea of like using glow-in-the-dark yarn ones on on a chill cow. I mean, I, I, I think that could still be cool, but I'm, I'm going to hold off for a little bit on that one. I think there's, like, little clues with every weaver of, like, okay, you can tell, like, who did that weaving or, you know, that that seems very much like, you know, Shkendu Dutan, or, you know, maybe Ricky Tagaban did that. Like, I don't know. There's, like, just little, you know, if you're familiar enough with somebody's sense of style weaving, even though it seems like this very, like, well, chill cat weaving, um, you you can kind of tell who, who wove something. I mean, now it's kind of like my... The robe I'm working on is sort of based off of um, encounters that I've had with my clan crest, the frog. And that was, I was going through sort of a a time in my life that was very difficult. And frogs would kind of keep appearing to me. And and at one point, I was going to go pick a new goonberry. And underneath the new goonberry, I could see like the little rustling of the mosses, moss, and all these like little baby frogs kind of started popping out from underneath it. And so I was like, well, this is like, okay, I'm not going to be like, this is a sign, but I was like, I would, (laughs) I was like, (laughs) I was like, this is a sign. So I was like, things are going to be all right. They'll, they'll, they'll turn out however they do, Mm -hmm. um, hopefully for the better. And so um, I worked with Abel Ryan and he, he designed um, the robe that I'm working on. So, so that is not necessarily even though, like, you know, when you're looking at it, you may not necessarily be able to tell what it is that is, you know, very much drawn from, you know, my, my experience as a human being um, on this planet. And then there's also cool story but like, you know, um, the, the Tiaton and, like, you know, a lot of the Wrangell clans had a, a very close relationship with a lot of the Tsimshian people. So the, our clan crest, um, our, our clan hat was actually carved by a Tsimshian artist, So they commissioned him to kind of create our clan hat. So there's always kind of been this, I think, this relationship between a lot of the Wrangell clans and and Simshian people. So in a way, I thought that 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 was kind of neat that there was sort of this relationship building as far as like between two artists from two different tribal nations, but very closely linked tribal nations
0: Leave it to Alaskans to describe the most rugged process in acquiring the materials needed for something you might think of as delicate, like weaving.
1: Okay, well, first you have to, <laughs> first you have to hike a mountain. No, <laughs> but pretty much step one: find a place where there's a where you can get cedar bark, and and I've done it, and I think at this point I, I feel like I've done it enough, and it kind of raises like you know. Th- the, the other question I'm just like the, the ecological um, impact of you know yellow cedar is especially a very vulnerable, sensitive um, tree and it's starting to become more and more difficult to come by but, but, but that is kind of like one of the base materials and I don't think I can kind of talk about creating that without also acknowledging that it's it's very sensitive. I don't think it's, it's not listed as endangered, but it, it, but it is, you know, something to be kind of concerned about. You go and pull your cedar uh, cedar bark, and, and, and if you're spinning it for warp, you don't have to, like, let it sit for, like, a year. Like, you, like if you're going to use it for basketry, then you have to let it cure. As soon as possible, um, scrape the outer layers of the bark off to get to the usable fibers underneath. The best time to do it is within a day. If you let it sit longer, it becomes more and more difficult to process that outer layer and get it off cleanly. If you do it the first day, it just comes off pretty easily. Part of Lane's work is to help make the original materials more accessible. Um, These days, we use uh, predominantly merino wool. Um, It is kind of my hope to sort of get a supply chain going of mountain goat wool, and I it's not really like secret project or anything like that, but there's a small uh, wool mill in, in Washington State that I work with, and so she's going to be experimenting with actually spinning mountain goat yarn with the with the mountain goat wool that I've gotten to her. So that is coming. We'll see. We'll see how it ends up. I'm excited about it. Mountain goat's beautiful to work with. It's just like you can have like a little fuzzy little ball of it or something like this and then you can just get on one end and start pulling it or like really, really long and suddenly have this like long thing of, you know, drafted roving, so to speak, and then you can take two of the, and then you can single play, um spin one of those on one, on your thigh and then spin two of them together to get your garden. So you, you need about a thousand yards to, to weave a, a Chilkat robe or to have enough warp to hang for a Chilkat robe and then I was, Reading that, on average, the depth of the... I don't know where I pull po- Probably just Google, but I think this is cool. Um, On average, the depth of the ocean is about 9,000 yards. So it's like about the third <laughs> of the way to the bottom of the ocean <laughs> to weave a chocat robe. You have to spin. Which is why I'm trying to figure out a way for this wool... <laughs> this woolery to do it. Or, sorry, this wool mill in Washington to do it. But there's lots of, um, you know, people that are starting to spin quite quite wonderfully. Again, I think about the kind of lineage-based mm-hmm. art form and everything that you're
0: talking about, like the context of how people are actually learning and sharing the practices right. among each other. It's, and you know when we're using the word lineage, as you distinguished earlier, it's yeah. not about biology. It's about the practices that we have
1: with each other and passing right. those things down. And, you know, and I think it kind of almost raises like, you know, you were saying how these things are like evolving. And I think it kind of is. Um, it's interesting to watch it happen, because I think even from, you know, when I remember when I was first learning. Um, it didn't seem like there was very many of us um, weavers and now like all these people are weaving and like <laughs> it's amazing just to see how many people are really picking it up and not only picking it up, but like really thriving with it, too. And, and I feel like that's just even been a shift with over within the last 15 years, to be honest, and just you know see the amount of people that are really really taking it seriously and, and picking up picking up that weft yarn and <laughs> getting their fingers in that warp or whatever. Um, it's really cool to see um, just being able to spend time with anyone and, and that's willing to kind of share anything with you as far as you know the knowledge of of weaving kind of like adds to that lineage.
0: I'd like to say enough, but big thanks to Lane Nishinagut Reinhardt for sharing their story with us and to you, the listeners. I'm Chandra Ikugun Safran, and I've been your host for this episode of the Indigified Native Artist Series, created by Alexis Salih. The series is a program of Kewanik Broadcast Corporation. theme music is by Inuk artist Reet. This episode was written, hosted, and produced by Chandra Gugan safran with thanks to Nola Moses at Native Voice One, KTOO Public Media, Kwanic Broadcast Corporation, and executive producer Alexis Salih. This project is supported in part by the National Endowment for the Arts, on the web at arts.gov. The Siri Foundation, supporting Alaska Native education, culture, and heritage since 1982. GCI and Cook Inlet Tribal Council.